I wonder if you're ever struck by the insignificance of so much of our lives. Whether you wonder what the point is of going to school when the majority of what you learn will have very little to no practical use in day-to-day life. Whether you wonder that the job you go to work at each day could be done just as well by almost anybody else. Uh, And each day that you return home, you wonder just what it is that you've achieved. I wonder if you get frustrated that you spend hours each week preparing meals for your family, only for them then to be wolfed down in in a matter of seconds, minutes, without even being tasted, uh, and then forgotten almost immediately after. Does it ever discourage you that you put years of effort into a particular ministry or means of service within the church, only to see very little to no fruit? So much of what we seem to do in life seems to have such little lasting impact. We we flop into bed every night exhausted and yet wondering just what it is that we've achieved with our 16 to 20 hours in the day. What's changed? What have we done? What good have we accomplished? Now, I recognize that I hope for most of you that that caricature probably overstates the case of what you feel most of the time, perhaps this morning. We recognize that life has got its difficulties, but we find ways to pick each other up, encourage one another, uh, and keep going, don't we? But I would expect that nobody here is totally immune to that type of thinking. And I wouldn't be surprised if the vast majority of us either have in the past, perhaps do today, or or will one day in the future, become so overwhelmed by these feelings of uh, insignificance that it perhaps leads us to despair or sorrow. This morning, I want to look at what the Bible says about this issue of the insignificance of so much of life. And particularly, I want to try and trace out the path of wisdom that God's word leads us on as it tries to navigate us through the, through the forest of futility that life can sometimes seem to be. That path is a path that openly recognizes the, the, the frustrations of life. And yet it's a path that clears, steers clear of despair, leading us down the middle on a path of fulfillment, contentment, and even, dare I say it, joy and enjoyment. We're going to do that by looking at Ecclesiastes. So if you've got your Bibles with you, have it open at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Now, Ecclesiastes is one of the more unusual books of the Bible. There's a number of people I've spoken to this week mentioned that I was preaching from Ecclesiastes, and they take a sharp intake of breath. Ooh, okay, that's going to be interesting, they, they think to themselves. Okay, There's no narrative storyline to follow through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not a list of laws like you get in, in Exodus or Leviticus and so on. It isn't a prophecy like you get later on in the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is packaged with what we call the, the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And the self-stated purpose of the book is for the teacher, the writer, to try and share his thoughts with us on how to live wisely through the the insignificance, the, the futility, or in his words, the meaningless of so much of our lives. And in chapter 9, he begins to summarize all of his thoughts that he's laid down so far. And his conclusion can be seen in the first few verses. His conclusion is, there is one certainty of life that you must not forget. 
Verse three, uh, verse two, all share a common destiny, he says. Uh, verse three, uh, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. What is this destiny? What is this certainty that is coming to each one? You know it, don't you? The great certainty is that death is coming to each and every one of us. Righteous or wicked, good or bad. Uh, clean or unclean, religious or irreligious, he says. Whether you keep your promises or whether you break your promises, death is coming for you. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and however you live, death is coming knocking. This is the great certainty that underpins all of our life. And ultimately, in significance of life. Verse 3, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. Because you see, death doesn't just take your body at the end. Death takes everything that you are along with you. Look at verses 5 and 6 as he goes on. All your reputation will be gone. Think of that prowess that a lion might have had. Once he's dead, it's gone. It disappears. Any influence that a person might have. There is no more reward for those who have died. Any memory of you will be gone. Do you know you're lucky today if even your gravestone will stand longer than your next living relative? All of what you cherish, all of what you hate, all of what you long for, all of what you've desired will disappear with you. Never again will you have any part in anything that happens under the sun. At best, perhaps, it might get passed on to a relative. But what will that relative do with it? He addresses that in an earlier part of the book. Perhaps they'll just sell it and pocket the cash. Uh, Perhaps they'll squander it away with unwise decisions. Uh, At best, they will probably have different priorities to you and take it in a direction that you wouldn't have taken it yourself. Death casts its long shadow over every part of our lives... And it's from this simple fact that all other evils of life then flow. All those evils which which fill our heart with fury and frustration, he he describes in verse 3. And the teacher says, you would do well to take this to heart. Be reminded that death is coming. But even this greatest of certainties is uncertain. Uh, here's the paradox. The, the, the one thing that is most certain in life is yet uncertain. Verse 12, no man knows when his hour is coming. Let me ask you this, and please think about this question, because I want this to, to hit home to us. When will you die? When will you die? Now, I know you know the answer. Uh, of course, you don't know, you say. But think about that. You do not know. When will you die? Do you know, one in 29 children will have a parent die before they reach the age of 16. Do you know, every day, just in the UK, five people die on the roads. They don't set out in the car aiming for a crash. It just takes them. They die. Every day, 1,000 people are diagnosed with cancer. Before, of course, what happened with with COVID and the restrictions on getting to your doctor. 1,000 people. And only 50% of those diagnoses would survive more than 10 years after that diagnosis. 
Death is coming. And you do not know when it's coming. Now, this is nothing new. I know that. And the teacher recognizes that. Of course, who can deny the, the, the truth of death? But the teacher isn't telling us because it's something profoundly new. He's telling us because it's something that is profoundly ignored. You need to recognize that death is coming for you and you do not know when it will come. The certainty of life is so uncertain. But not only that certainty of death, all other certainties of life are uncertain too. Uh, look at verse I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift. It's not the fastest who wins. The battle is not to the strong. It's not the strongest who wins the fight. Food doesn't come to the wise. Wealth doesn't come to the brilliant. Favour doesn't come to the learned. Of course, nine times out of ten, they do. But occasionally, they don't. It's the reason the bookmakers can make their money. Because occasionally, the underdog wins. It means that those certainties that we're so prone to building our life on are a shaky foundation. And we need to recognise that. Even the most diligent, caring parents can end up with unruly children. Even the most hard-working labourer can end up in debt. Even the most loving and attractive young person can spend their life being single. Even the most competent managers are still ignored and pushed to the bottom of the career ladder. Those certainties of life which we are prone to build our life on are shaky foundations. Again, you know it. He's not telling you because it's new. He's telling you because we so often ignore it. Recognising death and all of its influence is one of the keys to life. And it's a lesson that ought to shape our whole approach to life here on earth. How then does the teacher say we should live in light of this truth? Well, verse four, he says, a live dog is better than a dead lion. Why? Why is a live dog better off than a dead lion? Is it because a live dog can uh, can go on enjoying life for a little bit longer? At least it can eat his uh, vomit that he throws up, the Proverbs might say. Is that why a live dog is better? Because at least he's alive? Well, that's not the reason the teacher gives. He says a live dog is better because he knows that one day he will die. If you know and if you realise that one day you will die... If you recognize that you have no control over that day, but God knows, then what ought to be the conclusion? The conclusion is that therefore today, the fact I am alive today, teaches me that now is the time that God has blessed me. The life I live today is all that I am guaranteed. Now, what I have in my hand today is the gift that God has blessed you with. That's what the teacher wants us to see. You see, we always want to, we always want to have everything. We want to have it all. We want to do it all. We want to know it all. We want to be known by all. We want to achieve it all, control it all, and through it all be happy forever and ever. And do you know what? You, you might get some of those things that you're aiming for. You might get the car and the house. You might get the new job. You might get the beautiful wife. You, you might get the great kids. But those things stand on shaky foundations. They are so uncertain. There's no guarantee that you'll be able to keep them. There's certainly no guarantee that you'll ever get them. 
you know, there's no guarantee even that you'll make it home for lunch this afternoon. All that you can trust in is what God has blessed you with today. The only source of satisfaction and enjoyment and pleasure that you can depend on is what you have in your hand right now. God takes pleasure in your pleasure. And the way that he's given you to receive that pleasure is not by what you might achieve in five or ten years' time or, or with the completion of this exam or with the, uh, the securing of that new job. God takes pleasure in your pleasure and it's the simple things of life that he's given you to enjoy. The simple things of life that he's given you to enjoy. The teacher says, go, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with joy. When you enjoy your food with gladness, when you drink your wine with joy, you are directly experiencing the favour of God towards you. Weren't they just a part of God's good gifts to Adam and Eve in Eden? Uh, Trees that he planted there which were were pleasing to the eye and good for food. The joy of food and wine and, and friendship were all part of Eden. Don't despise them just because we're after the is blessing you with the simple things of life to enjoy. This is what you have in your hand. Enjoy them while you have them, God says. Always be clothed in white, he says, verse 8, and anoint your head with oil. Just because you're going to die doesn't mean that you don't need to bother taking care of your body. The world was meant to be a place of colour and and beauty and vibrance and goodness, so take care. You present yourself. I ironed my shirt, especially, so I could say that line. <laughs> Take care of your house, too. Decorate it. Take care of your garden. As much as it pains me to say it, wash your car, if you like. If you like seeing it shiny and clean and ordered. Enjoy life with your wife, he says. This list isn't exhaustive. Enjoy life with your wife and your children and your family, and your friends. Enjoy them. Be glad for those relationships that God has put in your life. Enjoy is the verb here. Don't downplay that. You do enjoy your wife, don't you? You did one day, I'm sure. Enjoy the the relationships that God has given you. And whatever your hand finds to do, verse 10, do it with all your might. Do it with all that you have in you. Not because it gets you one step closer to that great ambition that you've been building your life towards. Don't do it to to, to move further up the ladder. Do it because this might be the last chance you get to do it. This might be the last chance you get to see your children play and laugh and sing and dance. This might be the last chance you get to taste that steak, those potatoes, the gravy. It's the last chance, the last summer you might see. The roses in your garden. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might because, because this is all you are guaranteed. There is no sense depending upon or waiting for some point in the future before you start enjoying God's good gifts. The gifts are here now and they can be found even in the simplest things of life. Stop looking at life as one long ladder that you've got to climb. Stop treating it as just one long process of exam after exam after exam. Stop thinking of life as a never-ending list of chores that you've got to get through. 
Stop approaching it as one more cycle in a loop of monotony. Same thing day in, day out. Stop wishing your life away by always rushing on to the next weekend. Live the Monday that you're in. Live the Tuesday. Live the Wednesday. Live the Thursday. Live the Friday. Don't just wait for the weekend. If you do that, those things that you're aiming for, that you're waiting for, will only either be stolen from you just as you approach them or they'll at least be snatched away from you by death in the end. See life as the gift that it is, full of goodness in every part. A gift from the God of goodness. Life is gift, not gain. That's your motto now. What you have right now is the gift that God has given you to enjoy. That's the message that the teacher in Ecclesiastes wants us to see. Go, enjoy your food with gladness. Drink your wine with joy. Because it's now that God favours what you do. I wonder if all this sounds a little bit familiar. Wasn't it Ronan Keating who sang, I'm living each day as if it's the last, dancing all night and having a blast? Is that what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is telling us to do? Uh, Look, the end is coming. You may as well make the most of it while it lasts because you don't know uh, when you're going to get any more. There's a parable in the New Testament that, that Jesus tells us of a farmer who uh, who has a bumper crop one year uh, and fills his barn with grain. Uh, and the next year he decides he's going to get an even bigger crop. And so he puts all his efforts and all his energies into getting an even bigger crop. And so he builds bigger barns. And then he has a bigger crop and gets even bigger barns. Uh, and eventually, once he's got the biggest barn he can build, he, he sits back and, and thinks, fantastic, I've made it. I'm going to enjoy all that my hand has worked hard to achieve. And God says to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded of you. Is the man in the parable a fool because he didn't get to enjoy what he'd worked for? If he'd have got to that point a little bit earlier, or if he'd been satisfied with a little bit less, would he have been counted wise by the parable? No. He was a fool not because he didn't enjoy the things he'd worked for. He was a fool because he'd not prepared for eternity. God has got a number of different tools that he can use to prepare us for eternity. One of those tools is death. It shows us the futility of life in the, on this earth. It shows us that if, uh, if all we're working for is things here on earth, uh, then we're going to be severely disappointed. But another of those tools is his gifts. How would we know what it means for heaven to be a better place if we'd never tasted anything better? than the chaos that seems to reign in this world. You see, God doesn't just simply offer us a blind alternative. Uh, Here's the offer of heaven. It must be better than what you're experiencing now. Instead, God gives us a small taste in the everyday simple gifts of life that give us a taste of the place that he's inviting us to share. You must not think that the Christian hope of heaven is for one day to be to be free from your body, to be floating around on clouds, playing a harp in some spiritual higher plane. That's, that's never what the Bible characterizes our hope to be. The hope of a Christian is that we will one day be resurrected, just like Jesus was resurrected, to a physical body that engages with other people, that walks around on the earth, that eats and drinks, that travels to places, that learns, that teaches that loves, that the Christian hope is resurrection, that we'll be in a new earth 
not in some spiritual higher place. We will have physical bodies and we'll be doing physical things like eating and drinking and speaking and writing and making music and dancing. A physical place in a physical world is our hope. You know, many, many people in this earth focus their lives on living moment by moment, just drawing out as much enjoyment as they can from each thing that they experience each day. They enjoy the gifts of God while they can. They don't claim that they're from God. They they enjoy what they can while they can because for them, that's the best way to make the most of this time we have before we die. But those who love Jesus, those who are hoping in the resurrection hope that he has promised, still love eating and drinking and speaking and dancing and loving and working, not simply to fill the time. We enjoy these things because they're a little taste of home. They're a little taste of what we have been promised one day. Only that day they will taste all the sweeter. The joy will be all the more full. They'll be so much greater than even what we experience today. Now that also means that throughout our life we do not need to run from the difficulties of life. If you're loving each day as if it's the last in the way that Ronan Keating was, all you can do is dance all night and have a blast. Because any any time that, that death or decay or destruction or injustice or pain creeps into your world, it's a defeat and you've lost what you're working for. And it's a distraction from the time that you're supposed to be spending enjoying. But the message that Ecclesiastes has given us is, although we are called to enjoy God's good gifts, that does not mean we need to run from the pain, the injustice and the sorrow that is very real in this world. I mean, we've already spoken this this morning about how the teacher wants us to see death, recognise it for what it is. If your only chance of enjoyment is here in this life, any pain and injustice must be shunned, must be pushed out. But that wasn't what Jesus did in his ministry. It was no embarrassment, Jesus, to be moved by compassion at the needs of It was no contradiction for Jesus to grieve over the death of his friends. Lazarus, who he knew he was going to raise, or John the Baptist, who wouldn't be raised. It's no unclean thing for Jesus to engage with the leper or the bleeding woman, even though it would uh, potentially uh, cause him to be shunned from uh, the temple or other places. Far from this experience of death and pain and decay, far from these things being a challenge and a a distraction to Jesus, his over death, his resurrection, only there in potentiality at that time, his victory over death means that he is not defeated by these instances of decay. Rather, he can engage with them. He can look death in the face. He can walk through the sufferings with those people that he meets on that road. And in the same way, if you are rejoicing in God's good gifts, not as final, not because this is the only thing we have to enjoy, but if you're rejoicing in God's good gifts for the sake of preparing yourself for eternity, then there is no fear 
in walking alongside those who are in the grip of death. And it is no defeat when time and chance come knocking on your own door. The gifts of God taste like home. Death and decay still serve as signposts to that place we are headed if we trust in Christ. I hope this message helps you to go home this afternoon and enjoy your Sunday lunch. Taste it and savour it. I hope it encourages you to, to, to go and ride your bike and, and play some music and ring your mother and make love and paint a picture and sing a song to enjoy all the goodness that God has given us in this creation in which we live. Not as ultimate, not as final, not because this is all there is to do, but because it's a small taste of what we will one day be able to enjoy when we're invited into that resurrection kingdom.